Okay, tell me what you had for breakfast. I had last night's leftover. That's dinner. good. That's healthy. Yeah, it is pretty healthy. Uh, no, no sugar, lots of sodium. <laughs> Cold. <laughs> All right, perfect. Welcome to Soundboard, the Steinway & Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. I'm your producer and host, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at Steinway & Sons and for the online music magazine, listenmusicculture.com. My guest today is Steinway artist David Fung, who recently recorded an album of Mozart sonatas for his forthcoming Steinway & Sons label debut. He spoke to me about the project at my apartment in New York City. Your first project for the Steinway label is three early Mozart sonatas and Correct. one late Mozart sonata. Yep, bookends. Okay. <laughs> so tell me what attracts you to Mozart sonatas and then specifically mm-hmm. the early ones, which make mm-hmm. up a preponderance of the music on this album. Great question. I mean, I can start this by saying that I think my father shares the view of a lot of people who have question marks about Mozart. He kind of thinks, hey, why Mozart? I don't really get it. I feel as though it's happy, like it's pretty one-dimensional. And then I'm like, dad, here's where you're wrong. Like, I feel like it's all about these different characters. It's completely operatic. It's got little snippets of humor here and there, sometimes just for two seconds. And then you pivot into something that's deeply singing and you can just imagine whoever it might be, whichever character from whichever opera that sort of starts emoting for four or five minutes in an aria type style, sort of trying to communicate the deepest, darkest, most emotions from inside. And I just feel as though this music really does that incredibly well. The early sonatas, interestingly, are incredibly operatic, but they're somehow more gestural. Definitely shorter phrases, a bit more punctuated in terms of almost rhetorical in the way that Mozart chooses to deliver his ideas. Thank you. 
Of course, he spins them and develops them, um, as any good composer would. They're rhetorical yeah. as opposed to what would the opposite of for rhetorical instance. Be? So then we get to the late sonatas, mm-hmm. and you'll hear this juxtaposition on this album with the uh, B flat major sonata, which is number seventeen. Long, endless melodies, and and they kind of transport you. Um, in the second movement, for instance, the melodies are so beautifully spun like tapestries that just go on and on, all these different colors, this kind of a brush of different sound and, and color that sort of just brings you from one place and suddenly you're like, whoa, I'm in a different key. Mm. Like, that's crazy. Whoa, I'm in a different mood. Like, how are we suddenly in this really stormy section? And I was just like two seconds ago being led around the garden, you know, through this peace and quiet, the most tranquil, incredibly, I think of this middle movement of number 17 as being some of the most um, spiritual and it's the most painful. Mm-hmm. When you step to a Mozart sonata, there's already a long recorded tradition, I would right. imagine. Is it a concern when you sit down with this music to take a snapshot of it at this particular mm-hmm. moment of time in your life? Is there a concern that you're bringing something new to the table? How much listening do you do of other interpretations Mm. before you try to put your stamp on it? Or do you try to put your stamp on it? (laughs) Or is it all about serving the music directly off the page? This is a very long-winded question. I'm going to try to latch onto something that really jumped out, because I I feel like I'll have to answer this question in different parts. But um, one of the things that you said was sort of the idea of putting a stamp on something. And I think even if as performers we don't want to do that, I think inadvertently we always do. I mean, it's just our fingers, the way our bodies built, the, the length of our fingers, the independence of our fingers, the repertoire we learned growing up and how agile we are, you know, in different repertoire. I think that's all to do with just our bodies and how, and our minds and how they've developed until this point. So no matter what we play, there will be an indelible print. That being said, I think it's also really important that we bring a voice to the music and that's the interpretational license that I think every artist strives to bring. 
because of that, we have these amazing conversations about, hey, did that artist cross the line? Or, hey, like, was that completely just like the freshest way I've ever heard that? And yet, you know, you create these sort of polarized ways of viewing certain pieces or even the interpretation of a certain phrase or perhaps a note. But one thing that really influenced me in spinning around back to Mozart is playing early music exclusively for about a year and a half, two years at Yale, where I played just harpsichord, forte piano and uh, chamber organ. And I think when you play those instruments and you listen to certain pieces, whether it's Mozart, Haydn, sort of his contemporaries, or even earlier, on those period instruments, you end up with a completely different viewpoint of what the music can allow. Of course, you know, as time goes by, sort of say from 1700, when a lot of this music was being written till now, there are lots of traditions that are passed down. You know, as we sort of gravitate away from those traditions, this this kind of constant evolution, I think the next step in that evolutionary process is in fact going back again to the first principles, our original sources as much as possible. These instruments, how would that have sounded? You know, do we have recordings of them? No, no, we didn't. But now we can imagine what that's like, what the capabilities are, because we're rebuilding these instruments, we're preserving these instruments, we're trying to bring back elements which were explored in treatises about uh, you know, from, say, Mozart's father, Leopold Mozart, in terms of how we ornament, how we stress and how we shape time and bend time and wield time to, to be expressive on that instrument. Super long-winded answer for your lengthier question.
Are you a fan of historically informed performance or are these period instruments just a great entree to the music? Great question. I'm a huge fan of period performance. I think it's incredibly informative um, and it broadens our artistic palette. The conservatory mentality um, is wonderful in many ways because it, it gives you a structure in which you build your music. It informs us for what the limitations are and you know how to, how to build a phrase, how much ritardando we should do or how much a forte could be in, say, Mozart versus a forte could be in Wagner. This is a very different, you know, th- these are the kinds of rules that university training really gives you. It gives you a sense of striving for perfection, giving you a very wide sense and perspective of how to really do something correctly, you know, in inverted commas. And I feel like what that does also is it strips away the kind of connection to the music, this kind of inherent inner connection that every performer needs to have. It's not just, hey, I'm going to try to imitate the sound or try to bring out this certain perfection in the playing, but it's sort of like, hey, I need to I need to really say something with this phrase. This phrase is unbelievably declamatory or this phrase is, is aggressive. Like it's not just like polite and, hey, I'm going to upset someone because I'm going to jab at the piano for two seconds. You know, these are the kinds of things that I feel like when you increase your vocabulary of what's out there. So for instance, some great recordings of Apollo's fire doing bark that you've heard a thousand times. And then you hear the amazing shape that, you know, Janet Sorrell is able to bring out of some of these, or, or these gestures out of the orchestra, which in the past we've just heard as sort of straight 16th notes. What does that mean to us? And what does that give us in terms of artistic license to, to do something for the music, not for ourselves, you know, like I sort of said before, it always comes down in the music. But how can we how can we bring that in a really fresh, exciting way uh, to audiences that may not have heard the, this kind of life in this music that probably was was there from from the beginning, but we somehow lost over time. Hmm. When you mentioned Apollo's fire, I was also thinking of Il Giardino Armonico. Oh and, yeah, and what they yeah. did with say Vivaldi's Four Seasons, which is Hollywood's go to. <laughs> Peace for absolutely any occasion. And I remember hearing that recording. And going like, wow. Yeah, it's like you, you really felt a warmth and a rawness there mm-hmm. that I hadn't heard from that music before. And maybe because it was on a smaller scale, mm. because those instruments were able to wield less power, that there's more, you can almost hear the sweat and the effort. Exactly. So a lot of it comes down to that is you've got gut strings, mm-hmm. you've got less taut bows, they're arched in a different way. And then you've got um, on piano, uh, we don't have this amazing frame, steel frame that can hold several tons of tension on these strings. We have these wooden things and, you know, again, gut strings and this really dulcet, beautiful sound. And so when you play forte on these instruments, it, it's actually kind of percussive. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of attack that you get from playing a forte piano that it's like, hey, I can do that on a, on a modern piano, and that sound is actually somehow inherent 
in some of the way maybe a string player might approach the string. You actually have to dig in a little harder mm. to get a bit of to get a little bit of attack when you start the bow, for instance, as well. Okay, so when you played these early Mozart sonatas on a modern Steinway D, did you try to shrink that instrument down a bit mm. um, into a more early Mozart dynamic field? You know, that's something that I did try, but... Um, because <laughs> but it didn't work. <laughs> well, because of the way that it's recorded, because you have this monster of an instrument. Right. What's really nice about the Steinway albums, you get this unbelievable clarity. You hear how the sound kind of is made within the instrument. And I think that's that's kind of just like the gold standard. That's mm. what people, you know, that's what everyone wants when they're recording. And in some ways, you do hear a little bit of that kind of, that Mozart clarity a little bit more mm-hmm. of that attack which you actually do get in a forte piano mm-hmm. somehow you get a different kind of resonance but with that resonance and that really rapid decay on a forte piano you, you get more attack and i think this this uh, recording does capture some of that but i think what i do try to capture is a little bit more of the rambunctiousness of the first three earlier sonatas a little bit more of the the quirky kind of gestural motions that aren't just governed by bar lines bar lines are there for notation, they're not there for expression. Uh, so as we're trying to tear down those bar lines, you know, some people might be like, well, why is David doing that? But um, mm. there is definitely this idea of... Um, Phrases over lines. For sure, yeah. yeah. And, and there's a freedom in that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that's something that you could hear in some of the, um, the, the fast movements, something that's just a little bit more, more quirky and uh, perhaps um, less traditional.
Was that your starting point? Okay, let's free this music a little bit. I think that's always been my goal with Mozart is, um, you know, I grew up hearing Mozart a certain way and now I'm trying to unclothe myself <laughs> with all of these clothes that I've put on um, through all my years of, of hearing something just... Or the this, conservatory this mentality yeah, exactly. you were Back alluding to, to before. Yeah. Exactly. So I'm trying to find a, find a way which I think is really authentic and inherent in the music that is absolutely true to the music and that I believe sometimes we, we've lost, I think. You know, and this is sort of my way of delineating that. Okay, now let's move to the number 17 sonata, which is a later work. Knowing that it's a later work, it's tough, right? Mozart was so young when he passed away that all those periods are smushed together. So we're not going to see the lifespan of maturity that we would in, say, Elliot Carter. (laughs) That aside, as a later work, how does your approach differ to that piece than the earlier sonatas, if it does at all? I think that there is a little bit of a change. I think because the melodies are longer and the ideas are, you know, do span more time. Like, you know, I think he he does use one idea and sort of, you know, stretch it over several phrases. I think that there is a little bit of um, um, restraint in that interpretation. It can be sort of very easy to to have shorter phrases in the, same, in the same way of conversation, for instance, being being very rhetorical, sort of just saying, hey, here is something that's declamatory. Here's something that I'm going to say now that is very short and punctuated, as opposed to, say, like a Shakespeare monologue, which sort of goes and, and it falls with a rhyme. It actually has parallel motions. It has... Um, it takes a lot of side trips. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of semicolons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like whatever it is, just yeah, sort yeah. of... And speaking so eloquently around this one idea, as opposed to sort of this more fragmented, perhaps. So I, I do think that the late sonata has a little bit more of that kind of um, restraint and, and spinning of this this line, this vocal line that just goes forever. Being aware of that restraint, how did that affect your interpretation? Um, trying to spin out longer lines. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. To, I mean, there is, as I listen back to the recording and it's, it's interesting when you record, it's sort of like, Oh, that's how I put down those pieces that day. And I'm like, Oh wow. I would do that differently now. <laughs> like, of course it's, it can only like be how, a snapshot. It can't be exactly uh, like I listen to it now and I'm like, Hey, I wonder, I wonder why I did that that day. But you know, I, I, I do think when I listen and I think back, I think there is this idea of just how long can I make this line without breaking it? Like, how can I make this instrument, which is so vertical, like, think about a hammer strike. It's like, mm-hmm, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. how can I make it sound like I'm dragging a hammer across the string and like mm-hmm. just getting sound and pulling it out of the instrument, coaxing it out of the instrument, you know, something like that. Yeah. That, I'll let the listener decide. If that you know. ephemeral through line. Yeah. Yeah. That we're exactly. all chasing. Yeah. I mean, I, rem- I took a lot of voice lessons um, throughout the years and it's something that's, you know, interested me. And I think that's what ultimately drew me to the repertoire of Mozart is this vocal quality and Schubert, you know, two of my favorites. And one of my voice teachers told me that when you, when you sing this line, I was doing Schubert leader and he's like, you just have to think of this silver thread mm-hmm. and he Spinning exactly yeah. pulling out of your, and this was in my undergrad. And I was just thinking, yes, I mean, this is what you have to bring in piano music because more than ever, it's that illusion of this gravityless, floating through space kind of sensation of, note spinning that we have to bring to the audiences in this repertoire. The moment that we sort of bring them out of this trance of this 
horizontal motion, then it's like, oh, he's playing a piano. Like, <laughs> like oh, wait. It's like the idea of um, like a gravity simulation or whatever. It's like that moment when gravity ends and you're like back on there. It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like they've turned off the switch. The dream is over. <laughs> right. Thank you so much. Congratulations Thanks, on the album. Thank you so much. Thanks for talking with me today. Thanks for swinging by. You've been listening to Soundboard, the Steinway and Sons podcast on artistry and craftsmanship. We heard a clip from Il Giardino Armonico performing Summer from Vivaldi's Four Seasons on Warner. And we heard Steinway artist David Fung perform Mozart's Sonata No. 5 in G Major, K283, in its entirety, from his forthcoming July 5th release of Mozart Piano Sonatas on the Steinway and Sons label. Visit steinway.com label to learn more. Our intro and outro music is Philip Glass's Mad Rush, performed on a Steinway Model M by me, Ben Finan, editor-in-chief at listenmusicculture.com. Questions for the podcast can be sent to info at steinway.com with the subject heading soundboard. Thank you for listening.